1: I'm here today with Joris Fliege and Piotr Zamoyski to talk about their new book, Towards an Ontology of Teaching, Think-Centered Pedagogy, Affirmation and Love for the World, which is definitely one of the most stimulating books I've read recently. Joris and Piotr, welcome to New Books in Education. Thank you for having us, Guy.
2: Yes, welcome and thank you
1: Before talking about the book, can you maybe start off by saying just a little bit about your background, what brought you into education as a discipline or questions about education more generally? Ah, okay. Well, um, I actually have a background in philosophy, and
0: then as uh, it happens so often with someone who has a degree in philosophy, I ended up being a teacher in high school. And it's only later in my life that I returned to academia in the context of an education studies department, where I did my PhD in philosophy of education. And um, dealing with uh, the public role of the body in education, and um, well, at a given moment I was very lucky to uh, meet my co-author, Piotr, and that has really made a change in my own academic life because we discovered that we had so many things in Common that we actually started to develop a new kind of research line, also together with a colleague um, from Liverpool Hope University. Well, by happenstance, at a given moment, we were all two of us working in uh, Liverpool Hope University. So we wrote a manifesto for uh, post critical pedagogy, and to a certain degree, The book we are talking about today is a kind of uh, offspring of this post-critical project. It's a um, post-critical way of dealing with teaching, with the figure of um, the teacher. Since then um, I returned to Belgium where I'm originally from, University of Leuven and um, nowadays I'm an assistant professor of philosophy of education and um, I'm still very lucky to be able to uh, work together with Piotr so maybe Piotr can uh, Chip in at this? Uh... Yeah, sure.
2: Uh, yeah, it's it's a so dangerous thing to ask people about a uh, biographical uh, trajectory that led them towards the point of life they are in currently, because I I could I mean if I really think about that, it's, uh, so I I would say it started with a very traumatic experience in in my house, high school. That was a very, very bad school. And, um, and then I had to uh, do something not to get uh, called to uh, the uh, mandatory military service and the only way to do that was to get into uh, higher education. And, um, and uh, so uh, by accident really, uh, I got a place uh, in uh, Institute of Pedagogy and then I realized that all the things uh, i was being taught during the first year showed me that all my experiences with school were really wrong and i think that this was very important for me because um, in a way i really understood what does it mean to attend a bad school and that's why probably um uh, I was a kind of um, how to put that well dragged into the 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 the, the, uh, the domain of education as something super important and it just made me stay uh, at the university of gdansk where, where i was studying uh, i was uh, in, uh, invited to a job interview just after i finished my studies and And uh, I was working there and then, of course, indeed in 2015, uh, also by accident, I met Joris and that really changed my life. He he had this um, proposition uh, for me to apply to a job in Liverpool Hope when he was there currently uh, hired. And uh, at the moment, that is, Um, and I did that with a success. And then we met Naomi Hodgson. Uh, Well, Yoris and Naomi knew each other before that. But uh, I think that was the moment when three of us were really hired as three philosophers of education there and so we just sat together and think what, what uh, our three views on the matter of education have in common and then from word to word we, 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 tr- we kind of uh, saw that mm, we have something to say about uh, the field that there, are, there is something happening in the field that we want to make uh, explicit to uh, make manifest so we have produced the manifesto for uh, post-critical pedagogy, as the have mentioned. And that really brought um, um, attention uh, of many people around the world, so to say, um, uh, concerning the world of uh, educational scholars, especially in the field of philosophy of education. Still, it was really widely discussed. And uh, and uh, from there on, we really uh, knew that there is something more we wanted to do. That there are really things that need to be developed. And indeed, one of the uh, one of the uh, offsprings of that initial work is our uh, book on uh, ontology of teaching that we are here today to discuss.
1: So you wrote a book about uh, education and I wondered, uh, because uh, many listeners are probably educators themselves, right? Whether on, in the university or in the school. And uh, I wondered if, there, if you had the chance to uh, pick one thing they remember from your book for their own being as, as a teacher, what would that be? Right, Um, I think just to begin
0: on the way you formulated the question, you are talking about the being of the teacher. So what I liked about Piotr's introduction was the existential tone, namely that he and myself, we had to write this book because out of some kind of internal necessity, Well, the thing we are writing about is exactly the the same. So very often, and especially today, the teaching profession is really seen as simply a job next to many other possible um, professions. Whereas we think that there is something um, special, unique about the teacher, the figure of the teacher, and that it is really a matter of being a teacher, right? So in um, one of the passages in the book, we say that uh, a little bit jokingly, that you are a teacher 24 hours out of 24 and seven days out of seven. Of course, we are not uh, claiming that the good teacher is the burnt out teacher. But what we want to say is that it is a way of... Um, Situating oneself in life and taking care for a particular form of life. And that is actually what we try to um, flesh out in the book. Namely that in order to be able to be a teacher, one must have fallen in love with a particular aspect of the world, the subject matter. Um, Of course, this dovetails with the idea of Hannah Arendt and so in her text on the crisis in education, the crisis in education, excuse me, um, she deplores the fact that teachers more and more are seen as specialists in teaching and not specialists in a subject matter. And we take this idea up, claiming that we can actually define somehow the teacher in terms of love for the world more generally, and love for a subject matter more specifically. So yes. Yeah, so
2: so I, I would say, of, co- of course, we are usually uh, on the same page with Yoris, so <laughs> I would say that this is indeed for me one thing that I would like to emphasize. There are more, but this is the most important, That. Uh, Usually, we think of a teacher as a, a particular profession, a job uh, that entails everything that the institutional aspect of schooling um, uh, is uh, um, trying to impose on on teachers. And what is, I think, very significant is that uh, this uh, in, imposition gets um, uh, more and more wide, so to say. There are more and more things that the teacher should do these days, uh, and teaching is actually one of them. Um, So it seems like a teacher today needs to take care of students' well-being, needs to be a therapist, needs to be a social worker from time to time, needs to work with parents, needs to, um, uh, you know, um, do a lot of other stuff than teaching. And what we try to do, uh, maybe before saying that, I would just say that, in that proliferating tasks of teachers today, it, it may be the case that teaching itself gets somehow lost, that teaching in itself uh, is sidetracked as a second, uh, um, how to put that, as a... Uh, a a practice of a second importance in uh, in the job uh, of uh, professional teachers. So what we try to do is to take all of the uh, not teaching practices out of the picture and focus on what really teaching is. And in that sense, when we speak of teachers, we are not speaking of people that have a job of a teacher, but people that are teachers sometimes not being positioned as teachers. They are teachers, but not necessarily having a job of a teacher. And when you think about teaching like that, then you can ask, ask, ask us a very legitimate question, why to do this and why a normal teacher would care for that kind of a look. And I would reply to that, well, maybe this book will help uh, people that are involved in the teaching profession to come into terms with what is actually an addition to what they are really doing. That is an addition to teaching itself. And maybe they will have an opportunity to appreciate once more uh, the teaching itself. Uh, because we, and I'm a teacher, so I can say it for myself, but I also work with teachers and uh, do an interviews with them and also organize uh, multiple debates with teachers on education. So I know that they are more and more pressed to care about many other things than teaching. And so teaching for them becomes something, oh, yes, we have to do that. But and of course, we are good at it. We can do We are capable. Uh, but, uh, but really, there are other worries now. Well, and then it comes out that they are not very happy with, with their life, with their work, with the, the situation. And I really think that what might be the way to, put, to, uh, to present this book is that uh, a teacher could look at this image of teaching per se and say, yes, yes, this is, this is why I love to do this. This is, this is exactly what, uh, what is worthwhile in this activity. And the rest is really a surplus. It's, some, it's an additional job that is imposed on teachers. And so saying that teaching is a way of life, is a way of being that starts in falling in love with a particular aspect of our world, And then uh, by staying true to that event of falling in love and make that moment, make that uh, situation or make that event of falling in love present in one's classroom every time um, is exactly uh, saying that this is what teaching is all about. And, And probably and hopefully... Uh, it, it can be um, some kind of a comfort for of teachers overwhelmed with other duties today.
1: So I would I would love to expand on some of the topics uh, you already mentioned: hope, uh, the, the presence, the subject matter. But before that, I would I would uh, like to step back and uh, ask you about because you already already mentioned that before this book you wrote a, po- a manifesto for a post critical pedagogy, and Joris, you already said that this is your kind of approach in your book. Can you explain this a bit more? What what does that mean? Post critical pedagogy.
0: Well. Um... To begin with, since we published this post-critical manifesto, we are actually not all too happy with the title because it has caused a lot of confusion. And maybe if we had to write it again, we would probably call it a manifesto for affirmative pedagogy, because that is really what it is all about. So um, to put it very shortly, it is indeed true that uh, there is a dominant way of looking at education and talking about education, and also about teaching. That is true and true critical. So it wants to. It is discourse that wants to debunk, that wants to show that we do as if we uh, want to um, foster more equality and uh, less violence through our teaching, but in fact. And exactly by thinking that we are doing the opposite, uh, we are actually um, fostering uh, more inequality and we are um, uh, we, we are uh, making violence structural and so on and uh, so forth. And we don't disagree with this way of thinking. What we disagree with is that this way of thinking has become the dominant one and that you it has become impossible to do something else. And what we want to do is to create an opportunity for doing something else. Um, So this is not a critique of the critical paradigm, but an invitation to do something else and also to give, like Piotr said, language, for instance, to teachers so that they can better explain what is worthwhile and important in their own profession. so post-criticality, or affirmative pedagogy, is about trying to find a language to give uh, rich, experiential, phenomenological accounts of practices that we deem worthwhile in the sphere of um, education. Uh, and the teaching is one of those uh, practices. So it is about what we call in in the book a kind of epoche. So it's not that we deny um, the value of critical approaches, but we think that we have to bracket them out for a moment so as to be able to do something uh, else. So something more positive.
2: Yeah, so um, I, I wonder if I could... Again, go a little bit biographical, uh, because that might help. Uh, because it's it's like when when working with teachers um, for years, it was like I was constantly faced with uh, the, the the desire of teachers to um, to get some kind of efficient mean. Uh, so as a scholar in education, I was supposed to give them a technical knowledge. And of course, there are many scholars that try to invent, uh, try to investigate the, 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 the realm of educational practices uh, and, and see uh, what kind of causal dependencies or relationships are governing that particular domain of reality and uh, from that they try to compose a knowledge that we could say is a technical knowledge that gives uh, uh, an efficient means to to work with um, uh, to work in education well there are like for over, I think, 100 years now, uh, it's very clear what kind of shortcomings this kind of approach to education has. And, and, And to make it very short, the problem is that when you think like that about education, education becomes a production process. And therefore, students are just human material to be molded. And that, of course, is very problematic. But there are other reasons why this approach is uh, being rejected for a long time although still it is important to have means so it's rejected from a normative perspective but still people are using different kind of methods and still people wonder what kind of method would be effective or efficient uh, in that kind of work but then uh, steaming from exactly the critique of that technical point of view, um, uh, another way of looking at, uh, uh, at education emerge, which is the critical way, uh, and the critical way focuses on showing exactly the dangers behind education uh, and the potentials that it has. So it's, it's, we have to know what we are doing when we are educating. And always it's like we are doing something that we intend to do, but we are also doing many things that we don't intend, but still we are doing them. So, and this is exactly the paradox Joris touched upon. So it's like we indeed, intends to uh, erase all inequalities, but still uh, uh, we are doing just the opposite and so, and so on and so on. So, And then the biographical part of that is that at a given moment, mm, I realized look, uh, listening to my friends, especially people from my own uh, um, Institute of Pedagogy at the University of Gdańsk, that they are um, following a particular pattern. They they build trust with teachers, where they go to their, uh, to their schools, to their classes, to the sites where the where teachers are really working. And then they do the research, they observe, they, um, uh, they make interviews and so on. So they collect materials and diverse, various uh, um, kinds of data. And then they come back to the university and then they show how that all, in what way this whole thing is wrong. So first they build a trust, teachers let them in, uh, and, and then uh, the, the, the researchers come back and say, all you do is wrong. You are just a re uh, um, making the the inequalities, injustices, uh, the oppression reproduced. It's like, you think, and this is even more, uh, what was really even more outraging for me is that all my colleagues were saying along the lines, of course, you think, you know, they were saying to the teachers, you think that you are doing good things to those children. But in fact, thanks to our Uh, sophisticated critical apparatus we can show you that in fact what you are doing is literally oppression. And at the given moment I realized that teachers real teachers only had two kinds of proposition or two kinds of knowledge that scholars of education can give them. Either that was the technical one or that was the critical one. And uh, the critical one is very important because it shows you what you really do, but it's not very comforting. It's not very optimistic. It constantly involves speaking about struggle, political struggle and things like that and oppression and enslavement and so on. And uh, so I stopped wondering why teachers want the technical knowledge. Because there is nothing else that uh, they could uh, refer to with some sort of hope. And for me, that was exactly the reason why at a given moment, I realized that we need to look for yet another perspective, thanks to which people can again appreciate education and, for example, teaching and find why it is just worthwhile, why it is something good, and why we still do it, although we know uh, about the shortcomings of this practice. So in spite of all the critical knowledge about education that we have, Joris wants to say something. I
0: know. Uh No, I, um, yeah. uh, I just wanted to add um, maybe it's uh, also autobiograph- autobiographically, I don't know, but um, I like what you said about the way in which researchers deal with teachers very often, that it is based on a kind of mistrust and a kind of willingness to to show to them and to the world something that they haven't seen themselves. Yeah? And I think that's also an important um, part of the book. Um, Namely, that when you take that position as a researcher, you place yourself in a kind of superior position, because you are the one who has seen, as a a researcher, you have seen something that the teachers can't see for themselves. right? So that's also very important... um, Um, thing to consider when defining post-criticality or affirmative pedagogy, that we want to start from um, kind of on an equal footing, right? Um, But further to that, this critical stance is also not productive in any way. It's always repeating itself. And That is also one of the reasons why I was so happy that I started to work with Piotr and Naomi on something else because we go to um, scientific conferences and you hear one paper after the other, people making the same analysis, education is a source of oppression and I will show you why and I will give you an example and another example, and yet another example, and so on and so forth. And you see that the people sitting in the audience, they are like, yes, yes, we want more, we want more, come tell us more. It's like a collective therapeutic session, right? Um, But it's not interesting and it doesn't help us in saying something really interesting. And um, so that is also why I think that we need post-criticality today. But, Piotr, you want to add?
2: Yes, uh, I just wanted to add that there is, of course, there is the second, uh, so to say, uh, move of critical pedagogy um, that, um, that also departures from the critical diagnosis of uh, education and the world. But what critical pedagogy uh, does is uh, referring to the hope of education itself that is critical pedagogy shows that education can, can make a difference in that world. But And that is also something that we have uh, taken into account. And that was probably our first um, uh, um, point of reference when inventing the the, the term post-critical pedagogy is that this task of changing the world that is set upon teachers by critical pedagogy is first of all, enormous. It's, it's really an incredible responsibility um, that a, a teacher is being paired with. And it's like, you know, you have to go against gigantic, gargantuan uh, structures of the whole global society and go against and fight against neoliberalism which is you know it's it's like me and liberals. what can I do? It's like it's really overwhelming. It's it's I have my own class over here and I also have a mortgage to pay and you know these kinds of things and then then they require they require the critical pedagogy pedagogues require me to be to be brave and to be and to be how to put that um strong in the struggle for the better future that's overwhelming that's the first thing the second thing is that um it's it's just again i'm not teaching i am changing the world so again it's not about education but it's um about something else so and that is something we found uh, very important that when you look at what critical pedagogues fight with and what they represent themselves you can see the very similarity of the structure when education is subordinated to some kind of external uh, goal in one case education is subordinate that is in the case of neoliberal discussions, so education is subordinated to the economic goals where uh, we educate in order our economy to grow and in order for individual students pupils to achieve uh, their individual success on job market Uh, what critical pedagogy proposes uh, as uh, in, in opposition to that stance, is actually subordinating education to political goals. Uh, so it's not about investigating the world, studying history, mathematics, and language, but it's about repairing our damaged democracy. Uh, so again, it's uh, there are external goals, which are political goals, that education is just uh, a mean, uh, too. And in that sense, uh, you can always ask, if this is the, really the case, then, then, then the old instrumental questions are going back. Are what you and and we can ask particular teachers, is that particular strategy you are taking a good strategy to achieve that political goal? Are you really uh, making a difference uh, towards um, a more just and more uh, uh, free and equal society? And so on and so forth. So that was also the case that we found this discourse um, Um, not convincing anymore uh, and problematic I would say and uh, and we thought that uh, that is maybe something that is worthwhile to uh, express and underline here is that there were also um, very interesting propositions uh, very interesting propositions in uh, the, uh, in the field of educational theory and uh, philosophy of education that were neither technical or critical and uh, that uh, uh, have opened a possibility um, uh, that we thought uh, uh, simply emerges in the field. So, um yeah. so we what we did in the book on uh, the, 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 again the, the, not the book we are gathered here today to discuss the manifesto for critical pedagogy. Uh, what we did in that book was trying to make make more clear and more manifest uh, what that third possibility is what is what, what, what it would mean, to go beyond uh, the critical paradigm uh, of uh, understanding education.
1: So now you explained uh, what you want to do uh, differently and what you do not want to do. And we will turn in a second to what you propose instead. But one last question on on this uh, is that uh, I, I know many people who would admit that, of course, education is instrumental to something. Yeah, I, I have my my goals I want to achieve, and education is the the mean to to the end. So, what do you think is is wrong with this view? Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's, shall
0: I answer, Piotr, or do you want the key? Obviously, um, from a sociological point of view, you can say that education has very concrete and important uh, goals. Of course, education is also preparation for um, adult life. And without education, we would not have a thriving um, society, and so on and so forth. And obviously, that is also a reason why uh, teachers do what they do. But probably um, this is not the most important thing. And it gets risky when uh, that what teaching is all about gets reduced to the instrumentality of uh, teaching, I guess. So, one of the things that you also describe in, in the book is the um, the standpoint from which the teacher, when he or she is real teacher, the standpoint from which he or she um, positions herself in the world, and we call it love for the world, and this of course, we are inspired here by Hannah Arendt, who makes a similar point, but if you think it's true, it's very well uh, put that what teaching is really about is about love for the world, because love is of course a passive uh, affect, right? It's not something that you can uh, fully control, and therefore it escapes by definition instrumental uh, logic and probably the moments in which we are most of all teachers, just teachers is the moment that we forget about what we teach for and what possible, possible outcomes um, are. On the contrary, when we are constantly reminded of uh the outcomes we are supposed to to reach, teaching becomes um uh, impossible, I would say
2: fully agree with that uh, I, I i would um i would say that why why education isn't isn't just an instrument to some kind of external goal it's um hmm, um one one could approach this also from from that side that mm, of course you can think that education is uh, a mean Um, and uh, uh, there are like uh, so many perspectives that are just doing this and from an economic perspective uh, as well as uh, from sociological as Joris mentioned and possibly from many political sides education just a subsystem of something so it has a function that it has to fulfill and in that sense it is just an instrument a social instrument political or economical instrument that's why what uh, in one of the chapters we try to distinguish between a transcendent and imminent approach to education so you can uh, you, you can indeed uh, see education from outside uh, as something that is connected with other spheres of our life, with other perspectives uh, than educational, like, for example, economic, uh, uh, as I mentioned, or uh, or so- social or political, as you always mentioned. Um, but you could also try to... Speak education from within. Speak out education from within. So you could, so you could try to see uh, education within the logic of education, and from the perspective of educational interests, so to say, and not from some kind of external point of view that looks at education from above and see what what can we do with it so and this is what we try to do in the book is that we try to speak out teaching from within and is and and in doing that we try to really look at education um from an educational perspective and and because and i'm sure that our listeners are trying to imagine what the hell is that and exactly because it's so hard for us today um, to uh, even imagine what 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 is it? What is educational perspective on viewing things? Uh, th- that is exactly the reason, or how? To, or maybe that's not the reason, but that's the outcome of the situation that we are currently in. the The very fact that we uh, we forgot that education has a very own, unique, distinctive logic that's uh, when you are really in or when you think within that logic, you see the world, you see uh, the f- different kind of phenomena in a different way, different than when you... Uh, uh, approach them from ec- an economic or uh, sociological perspective and when you look at it from within it's no longer a mean to something when you try to look at teaching from within you, you can see that the the logic of means and ends doesn't work there uh, It Rather, we speak about an experience of teaching and a practice of teaching that entails particular gestures, particular um, uh, uh, practices, uh, like study practices, um, and attitudes, and also that requires to uh, to start with particular assumptions. You see these kinds of things and not ends and means. And I think this is important that uh, indeed uh, we, d- mm, we, we, we tried to do this. We, so we tr- really tried to um, remind ourselves about the, the internal, so to say, logic uh, of education. Why? Because then you could... Maybe not why. That's not a good point. The point I wanted to make is that when we are teachers, when we are teaching, really, then this is exactly what Joris was telling. Let me just go back to this. When we are teaching, um, there is this moment when we really enjoy teaching, that teaching is, that we can clearly see that this is simply something good in itself, worthwhile. that we are doing something great with our kids and in that particular moment we no longer have in mind uh, what uh, our curriculum is uh, imposing on us or what our headmaster has told us to do or what our politicians are thinking about education or whatever else and we are not thinking about future jobs of our students we are just focused on what really happens in the classroom between us and children. This is exactly what we wanted to underline, re-establish stress, and 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 if if we do that, the ends means logic doesn't work anymore.
1: One one way you you do this in the book is. Uh is a very great way of uh, portraying the great conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein as a gesture, as a man of these kinds of gestures you just talked about. And um, I thought maybe I can ask you about the title of your book and you can relate the elements of the title to Leonard Bernstein. And we can, we can maybe start in the end. So the title is, again, I read it, Towards an Ontology of Teaching, Thing-Centered Pedagogy, Affirmation, and Love for the World. So maybe we can start with affirmation and, and love for the world to come to the more positive <laughs> way things. Uh, what does that mean in education?
2: Can I start this time? To give a little time for Joris, too, because I, uh, I think I think that uh, it 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 will it will really worked for me that Joris was first all the time, so I had the time to collect my thoughts. Um, so uh, maybe uh, th- thank you for this question. Maybe maybe from uh, the very beginning we indeed should say some few words about the the uh, this example that we chose. So there, there, there are quite a few misunderstandings about uh, why the example and what is the meaning of that example, and so on. And I think that it's it's really necessary that we first take care of that. So a few disclaimers, so to say. Um, uh, yes, indeed, we we take Loner Bernstein young people's concerts as an example of teaching events. Um, and we do that uh, for mainly for two reasons. First, we are both uh, with the audience uh, lovers of classical music's uh, music, and of course uh, of uh, of and Bernstein. And uh, second, um, Leonard Bernstein Young People's Concerts are. Uh, publicly available. These are uh, teaching events that are available to everyone and are in the public domain. So when analyzing this example, we uh, didn't uh, refer to data that would be collected only by the two of us and no one else would ever have the chance to see what we do with this data. But we are referring to something that everyone can see for themselves and judge for themselves whether or not our analysis is makes sense, um, is is reasonable. So this is uh, one disclaimer. The second disclaimer would be that Bernstein is not an ideal teacher for us it's not someone we have to uh, re- repeat after we, we have to treat with like a, some kind of a te- god for teachers or whatever no it's not it's not that uh, it, it is exactly an example so uh, this is uh, in uh, how to put that so there are like many shows of young people concerts that are not exactly teaching events. Some of them are rather um, concerts with um, uh, with emphasis uh, on, on playing a particular kind of music with not so much of uh, uh, interventions of Bernstein. But some of them are really teaching events and we took the these uh, as examples to uh, show. Um, to, first of all, indeed, as you Kai, have uh, suggested to show where uh, uh, these elements of ontology of teaching we have distinguished in the in previous parts of the book can be found in this particular video material. But second of all, also to investigate what is more there. What can we find when we phenomenologically study a teaching event? When we do that, indeed, from an imminent perspective, that that is when we try to see what teaching is all about, regardless of any external um, external perspectives. So uh, this is indeed uh, what we uh, uh, what we try to do with Bernstein, and in that sense, um, it is just an example. So we use this uh, as any uh, any kind of a teacher, uh, uh, but luckily enough. Uh, a teacher that uh, is being recorded while teaching and that these these recordings were put into the public domain so everyone can relate to them and that's why uh Bernstein is uh, uh is in a book in the book and this is the the meaning of that example so i, I give back to Joris.
1: so the the question was about about hope and the affirmative um affirmative aspect of uh, your book so uh Joris do you want to expand on this or yes um so of course it, it gets a bit complicated
0: because Piotr already mentioned that um, we also look at the Bernstein's gestures and I also would like to say something about that but let's first start with um the kind of the particular kind of attitude uh, from which um, Bernstein um, does what he does. And there is a fantastic quote from one of Bernstein's writings, because he has also written a lot about music, which really captures this purely affirmative uh, way of situating oneself in life. So in regards with composers, he says, and I quote, this is somehow the key to the mystery of a great artist, that for reasons unknown to him, okay, he says him, but we could say today him or her, he or she will give away his energies and his life just to make sure that one note follows another inevitably. It seems rather an odd way to spend one's life. But it isn't so odd when we think that the composer, by doing this, leaves it at the finish with the feeling that something is right in the world, that something checks throughout, something that follows its own laws consistently, something we can trust that will never let us down. So there are things in the world that are just good, like great music That's a thing with which he is in love, And it is because of this love that he cannot but teach. He wants to show, he wants to share his love for music with the new generation. It's again, what is it, the kind of internal necessity. And that's actually what he does in the the program. He tries to show what is so great about um, classical compositions. And he does this in a very simple but never simplifying um, way, which is very fascinating. So he is not speaking like he's the he's the one with all the knowledge, and all the others are too stupid to understand what he is talking about. Um, no, that's not at all his his attitude. So he, he he succeeds in doing it in a simple way, but at the same time not simplifying he's not making things uh, simpler than they than they are he discusses with children very complex principles of uh, classical music like the sonata form or um, uh, intervals and uh, stuff like that and so that was also what triggered us to to, uh, to study yeah, this particular case so how does this stance in life, this affirmative stance in life, this law for the world, in this case law for music, translates into particular gestures. And um, some of the things that we found out is that um, he really um, draws attention to the materiality of things. Of course at first sight that sounds a bit crazy because we are talking about music here it's all sound and not matter but in fact what he does is um, um to um to how to say to transform the music into pedagogical stuff into things that one can uh study. For instance, in the um, episode where he explains how music is actually made, how a great composition is um, made. The show is called What is Orchestration? So he tries to show that the very difficult task of the composer is to match the right tunes and melodies with the right instrument. And then... He invites people, so the, the, the various members of the orchestra, to play the tune, so that you can actually hear, almost on material level, that some instruments work better than uh, other instruments. So that is actually what we mean by think center pedagogy in uh, the title of the book, to come back to your question, what a teacher essentially does is to draw attention to things and the material aspect of things, and this is educationally very important because this also means that one gives authority to the thing. You don't have to believe what Bernstein says because it is Bernstein who is speaking, Uh, Bernstein succeeds in being a good teacher because he draws our attention to something that is to be seen or to be uh, heard. So another gesture that he uh, keeps uh, making in the program is to to, to literally draw our attention by saying, uh, you see it, you hear it. Um, He also bridges the distance that people might um, think that, is in place, namely, it's classical music, it's nothing for for children. Well, he really invites you to to come closer and to have a look um, yourself. So for us, these things are really um, true and true educational uh, gestures. I don't
1: know whether that is an answer to your question, Kai. Sure, yes. Um, The the, the final question I I want to ask is um, your relation between education and politics and more precisely uh, your notions of uh, responsibility and emancipation you develop in the sixth chapter. Um, Maybe you can, because both terms are uh, heavily used responsibility and and emancipation heavily used in critical pedagogy so maybe it would be uh, nice to hear your your take on them from a from a rather different perspective
2: okay if uh, if I could make a proposition so I, I could I could do the responsibility and emancipation in yours will do the politics and education relation that that. that that might be a good solution to to be on time with everything because it's a lot there. Normally today, we would say uh, a prevailing a dominant uh, view on the matter is that education has something to do with emancipation. And emancipation is indeed a a very important term. Uh, uh, I think at least from... Uh, 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 Comenius, or maybe even from the time of Plato, uh, education—no, getting to know some uh, things—is setting us free in different ways. And um, uh, I would, I would say that this, uh, uh, this is still something important, and and I guess uh, it, it is. it is important to think about that relation and that, and the fact that indeed from a, uh, if you take a, the phenomenon of emancipation it is indeed linked with education period what we try to show in the book is that when you think about the logic behind of eman- uh, the the notion of emancipation then we get into trouble and that it, it, exactly when thinking about educational logic we should rather think in terms of responsibility and the logic of responsibility rather than in logic of emancipation why because emancipation is always um uh, always refers to enslavement so it's it would be just senseless to emancipate someone who is already free so we have to be deprived of freedom, you have to be oppressed and enslaved uh, in order to be emancipated. And if you looked at the, uh, the Roman, the uh, ancient Roman uh, origins of this uh, notion, then you could see that, of course, it relates to a father that uh, sets uh, his son free, uh, which, by the way, uh, by the Romans was not necessarily conceived as a good thing. Because that person was just not uh, the part of familia anymore. Um, yeah, but uh, the very legal mechanism that is used to emancipate a son is a mechanism of manumissio, if I remember correctly, that's the name, the mechanism of setting free the slave. So it's it's just there. You have to First, assume that people with whom you work are slaves or that they are enslaved and that they need you to become free again, or very free for the first time. So that pupils, students need teachers to be freed, to be emancipated, to be liberated and of course we found that problematic Uh, and um, for for various reasons it's uh, also because it just repeats uh, the structure of inequality that it uh, usually um, is uh, uh, wants to fight with is against Um, and of course we also were pretty much influenced by the work of Jacques Ranciere over here and his critique um, of any kind of a progressivist pedagogy that starts with the assumption of inequality and then gradually wants to indeed emancipate set free people or pupils, um, um, paving the way for them to become free in the end. Uh, Ranciere's argument is that when you start with the assumption of uh, inequality, you will just reproduce the inequality. So here and now, you are unequal, and I will try to emancipate you to make you free. You need me, you are dependent on me. And there is never, Ranciere is showing in his book, and never a moment when you can, uh, as an enslaved Student or a pupil um, uh, surpass your teacher and become really fear, free. You are always on the way. It's like you're always behind. You're there is always inequality. So equality is something that is delayed in that uh, logic at infinitum. It never happens. This is also true for any kind of critical pedagogy. When you look at it, it's like you you you, you there is no possibility and critical theory for that matter. There is no possibility for people to be just free. There is always a struggle before uh, us. There is always uh, some kind of enslavement of oppression of inequality that is still there and needs to be fight with and so on. So we are always not uh, at the point. So Rancière has a big argument uh, against that, and I will not try to reconstruct this because of the time constraints. But I would say that uh, when looking at this, we we just thought that um, this how to put that this kind of logic is not necessarily what uh, stems from experience. Of being a teacher, that the being a teacher refers to to something else, and and when trying to uh, when trying to um, find out what it is, uh, we have approached uh, the the um, uh, philosophy of responsibility. We refer mostly to uh, Hans Jonas and Georg Picht, and uh, from I mean we don't take it all. Uh, it's just an inspiration. But what, they, what we, we found very important for our understanding what the teaching is all about is, uh, is the way um, uh, responsibility portrays our relation with the world. So if you look at the notion of emancipation, the world is something strong that, uh, th- that is pressing that indeed oppresses and enslaves. So we have to fight for ourselves and emancipate. So the focus is on me. The focus is on I. I need to be free. I need to fight for myself. I need to um, the people need to fight with the world which is a big structure uh, that oppresses them. In the notion of responsibility uh, there is a a completely different assumption is the assumption that we can do something about the world. So we are not enslaved, but we have some kind of a limited power and that's the starting point. And that in the world, there are things that are worthwhile, that there are things in the world that are good. And responsibility is exactly the relation of a subject that can do something uh, with a thing uh, that is worthwhile. So if we can do something about a thing that is worthwhile, we are, in a strong ontological sense, responsible for that thing, because we can. Uh, That doesn't mean that we will do and that we will behave responsibly, uh, but uh, uh, we can. And we think that there is something very uh, um, similar when we speak about teaching. That there are things in the world that we care about, that we find important, like like thematic for other um, uh, uh, teachers that there are things that we think they are worthwhile and we can do something about them. We can, uh, we can pass them on to the next generation. There is something much more familiar in that logic, the logic of responsibility uh, when uh, teaching is considered, uh, uh, then I would argue in the logic of emancipation where uh, we are at war with the world.
1: Joris, Piotr just said that in in the logic of critical pedagogy, we can never really be free. And uh, many people I know would argue, well, of course, because everything is political. And in politics, there is no real freedom. We are, um, the private is political down to our most intimate uh, aspects of our lives we're all in this uh, mess of politics, but in your last chapter, you propose a distinction between education and politics. And I wonder whether you can explain this a bit. Well, the best way to explain it is to let the uh,
0: artist speak because we begin the chapter by this beautiful quote by Italo Calvino, The inferno of the living, I quote, is not something that will be. If there is one, it is what is already here, the inferno where we live every day that we form by being together. So that would be the bleak political analysis that we cannot escape oppression, and we can repeat that again and again and again. there are two ways to escape suffering. It. The first is easy for many, for many people, accept the inferno and become such a part of it that you can no longer see it. So this would be like a, a kind of cynical response and a kind of very deep cynicism that lies at the root of um, a critical pedagogy and the politicization of education. But. Calvino continues, there's also a second possibility which is much more risky and it demands constant vigilance and apprehension. Seek and learn to recognize who and what in the midst of inferno are not inferno. Then make them endure, give them space. So uh, despite everything that goes wrong, it's the educational endeavor to show that there are yet things that are good and worthwhile to pass on over to the next generation. Um, so th- that quote inspired us to make this very uh, sharp distinction between two logics, two uh, ways of relating to the world, which we call law for the world and hate for the world. And to make it, uh, so, but very briefly, we really think that an educational stance towards the world is one of pure love. You cannot educate if you hate the world, whereas an political stance towards the world is always at least partially driven by hate for the world. To be clear, we are not against hate for the world. There are many things that are completely wrong in this world and they deserve a political answer which is driven by hate for the world and possibly also by love for the world because you have an ideal that is put forward into the future, but we really think that in case of educating and uh, the, the stance from which you start is one of uh, pure love. Um, But maybe I should also add, and I really want to add, because this is something that has not been discussed throughout our uh, talk, this attitude of love for the world is also related to uh, what Arendt so beautifully captures with her uh, notion of uh, natality, namely that there is always the possibility for the world to uh, renew. And that is also why our... Very last section of the book is actually on uh, on hope, so maybe I can say very quickly something about the notion of newness and the notion of hope, because it will give a truly positive um, uh, account of, of what we think education is is about. Yeah, so. Um, Well, different from, so from, okay, Arendt starts from a very humanistic position, and she would make a very sharp distinction between animals and uh, humans. But what characterizes human life is the possibility that we can always begin uh, anew. And that's actually what we do. If you look at how humans lived 100 years ago, their ways of living was completely. Different from what we uh, how we live together today, and in hundred years time, it will again be uh, completely different. Whereas lions always live the same uh, life; they have the same life form over the last ten thousand, I don't know, million uh, years. There's never change there in, in 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 the form of life. So newness is some kind of the possibility of newness, which defines us as human beings. Is actually a kind of challenge to the uh, older generation. So the older generation is confronted with newcomers, and then the old generation can uh, take two decisions either uh, you leave the others, the newcomers, to their own devices, or you want to share with them what you find important in your life, but of course, in such a way that they can begin anew with it, right? So um, education is uh, not indoctrination, it is uh, answering to the possibility or to the coming uh, of a new in the world. You pass on something, but in such a way that uh, others can add something to it, do something differently with it. That's also why education is so uh, dangerous, because it can really uh, transform our ways of um, living. But more positively speaking, uh, this is also a sign of hope, so to speak. We cannot conceive of education without talking about uh, hope, as uh, Freire says so beautifully. Um, But then again, we have to be clear about what we mean by hope. So That might also be a way to differentiate the political logic from from the educational logic. So the political logic will will always, excuse me, uh, position hope in the future. So um, we hope for a better world than the world that we have Uh, now. Whereas the educational, uh, the most profound educational gesture is about uh, hope in the present, it is creating the possibility of something new by showing that here and now there is something uh, worthwhile in spite of all the things that go wrong and that we should hate from a political perspective. So um, this is actually, I think both for Pilter and myself, a very important uh, point that um, a true transformation and yeah, the feeling that things might go better in the future are predicated on what we call hope in the present. Presence or um, also hope-ness as a kind of um, active force that is related to um, completely uh, devoting oneself to studying something that is worthwhile uh, here and now, and I think I better uh, stop here. If I
2: could add to this, I would say uh, only this: um, that um, indeed, uh, p- political logic always uh, defines ho- what 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 is hope for. So the hope is uh, is usually uh, uh, well very well described it's 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 exactly it's the political project the political agenda that we try to accomplish and we think that in education uh, there is a rather a sense of hopelessness without a particular thing we hope for So we really think that there is something hopeful in the very fact of teaching. When you really are studying something together with your pupils, when you delve into the particularities of of a thing of study, of of a particular uh, part of the world, then there is a sense of hopeness in that. But there is no particular hope, no particular future image that stands behind this hope. That it's not really something that is defined, it's indefined. It's, it's something that we call indeed hopelessness without the hoped for. And I think that this is indeed very uh, mind-bending because we usually don't uh, consider this uh, term in that way. But on a phenomenological level, I think this is something that uh, people who are teaching, who are teachers, uh, immediately would recognize that this is something that we just feel when teaching.
1: Thank you very much. I have many, many more questions on my, on my notebook, but I have to stop here and ask you the traditional uh, final question in the New Books Network. What are you working on right now?
0: Well, there are many, many projects we are working on, and probably uh, too many. But uh, one particular project that stands out, I think, um, has to do with um, developing all the things that we um, developed in the book in terms of um, yeah, the ecological crisis we are facing today. Because obviously, if uh, the law for the world is so important in uh, the book we wrote, um, the, the question uh, poses itself what it means to respond in an educational sound way to a world Um, being at the threat of extinction, right? Um, And again, we think that there is a difference between responding to that threat politically and educationally. And I think that we want to try and understand um, what that would entail. And we are much inspired by, let's say, scholars from the background of new materialism, like Bruno Latour and Isabel Stengers, and uh, we see a lot of potential there to um, to develop new ideas and uh, exactly pedagogical practices. Study practices, and then so from an affirmative um, point of view, so show that there are some interesting practices that we might engage in, and these might actually um, come down to um, a way of living together in a sustainable way with Earth's human and non-human um, inhabitants. So I think that is, in a nutshell, or uh, maybe also to, to add to that, we have uh, called uh, this project, uh, where there are many people who work with this term today, after Progress because it also entails um, that we leave behind a particular modernist view of, um, let's say, uh, educational uh, progress. And that again links to what we uh, just said about openness and the importance of um, kind of attention for the presence, for the present, excuse me
2: yeah and and this as you may assume uh, is also a mind-bending exercise because it's really hard to uh, think about education without reference to progressing to development to uh, to actualization of potentials and things like that there are attempts already made uh, that try to think about education like that and i think that our uh, ontology of teaching could be seen as one of these, but still, I mean, there is there is a lot there uh, uh, that we really need to rethink. And this is uh, this is one side of this project. The other, uh, I think, interesting part of this is uh, that um, there is possibly something in the way education approach how to put that there is something in 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 the way in in the educational way of relating with the world that may be also of political importance especially in the face um of uh, the new climate regime of as Latour is uh, calling this. And I think that this also is so important that um, that there are s- educational practices that um, uh, that maybe even we could say should, or have to be installed, or have to be yeah, installed within the the political realm, that we have to learn and study more uh, of what is going on and how we may uh, change it. So I think, and for me, this is, in a way... A, a Again, a reappropriation or uh, reshuffling or reconstruction of the relations between the politics and education. That, that there is something going on there as well. and I think this is also interesting.
1: Joris Flieye and Piotr Zamaski, thank you very much for joining me on new books in education.
2: It was really a pleasure. Thank you very much for
0: having us. Thank you very much
1: yeah.